thank you so much for doing this. This is the second of these kind of little side podcasts we've done with uh, with That Was Genius, where we just talk to, frankly, interesting people about, <laughs> <laughs> about curiosity and what inspires them. I can do a bit of horn blowing for you now on your behalf, or you can do a little bit yourself. Do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? No, not really. <laughs> well, what do you want me to say? <laughs> well, for the audience, John is probably best known in, in recent years for creating QI, I think it's fair to say the series that has inspired that was Genius, our little history podcast. And before that, you were the producer on uh, Blackadder, Spitting Image, among many, many, many other things. And you're also a podcaster yourself with the BBC through Museum of Curiosities, which I absolutely love and was very excited to hear on the most recent episode, uh, Gregor McGregor getting a mention, <laughs> who is one of my favourite historical uh, con men and kind of evil figures from the past. He was also an absolutely appalling military commander. He once got surprised oversleeping on a Sunday by the Spanish when they invaded New Granada, and uh, he left his troops to die whilst escaping on a rope made out of bed linen, uh-huh. swam out on a log to sea and sailed off and never came back. Um, wow. <laughs> but anyway, so John, what makes you interested in things? I know that's a big question, but as someone who creates a show like QI, you have to have a curious mind. Yeah, It's one of the big questions of the universe is why are things interesting? I mean, we don't know why it is that human beings really alone among species. I mean, I know they say that rats can laugh and, you know, (laughs) otters are playful and things. But actually, porcupines on the whole don't look up at the night sky and wonder what all those sparkly bits are. You know, that most animals are concerned principally for their own survival and and the, that of their genes so you know if it's to do with food or sex they're they're interested otherwise they're, they're not bothered as far as we can tell and i've struggled for many years to ask that sort of question like well, why are things interesting what is funny what does funny mean why why do we have comedy what's art what's music why do we like music these are it's it's so interesting that the things with which we are most familiar, you know, laughing, sleeping, thinking, uh, are the most mysterious. We really don't know the mechanisms that underlie them. We don't really understand what matter is, for example, yes. let alone consciousness, which is, the, is known as the hard problem in science because we have got absolutely nowhere. Um, so when you hear this idea of AI, you know, touted in the papers all the time about intelligent robots. There isn't any such thing yet. Uh, they have a thing called artificial limited intelligence, which is a machine that can do one thing extremely well, like play chess or drive a car. Mm. But the same, the chess machine <laughs> can't drive the car and, <laughs> and vice versa. Whereas these central mysteries, the, the, the I call them TOMs, the ordinary mysteries, you know, they're, 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 they're so extraordinary. And... I think I've always been pretty interested in things. I think partly because my dad was in the Navy and we moved a lot, you know, pretty much every year when I was a child. So you're always at a different school and then it took six months to get you into a school and then you were leaving and on a troop ship. So my mum used to sort of teach us by means of quizzes and, you know, in the station wagon on long journeys or on a troop ship or, you know, just hanging around in hotels waiting to get to school. And so... I didn't really go to a proper school, really, I mean, for any extended length of time, more than a year, until I was nearly 10. And it was a bit of a shock, because for me, education had always been fun, you know, speaking Spanish when I was three and Maltese when I was nine. Uh, You know, you learn things because that's the way people are built. All human Mm. beings want to learn. They want to know when they're small. 
and most of them have it beaten out of them by the time they're about eight. Yeah. And that hasn't happened to me. It's gone on and on. And uh, the sort of motor behind QI was I had this terrible midlife crisis in my early 40s where I woke up one day and I couldn't see the point of anything. And I worked out, it took me a while, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of anger and resentment and, and not to say misery, that I basically had become too successful too young. And I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd ticked all the boxes and won all the prizes. And, and that's what I was always pursuing until I was 42. And the next 10 years were trying to reverse what I thought was important in life. So I used to think things like success and intelligence and, you know, doing well, the respect of your peers, those things are important. But things like kindness and cheerfulness and paying attention, those things never figured on my list of things that were made you a better person. I would advise you against having a midlife crisis in one way because it's very, very scary. And on the other, do have one as soon as you can because you stand a chance of the second half of your life being a meaningful one rather than a pointless decline into the grave. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, long sentence. No, well, not at all. And I, uh, I, I very much feel that the reason that I'm here today as a self-employed, let's charitably call it, podcast producer is because I had a midlife crisis and quit the BBC and decided to go travelling and then do my own thing. Well, how interesting. I hope that if I'd stayed at the BBC, it wouldn't have been a long decline into the grave, but You've worked at the BBC, <laughs> you've seen W1A. Yeah, you've got one foot in it, yeah. <laughs> I think that's all we need to say on that subject. <laughs> that's kind of very lucky in a way, though, that you never had that question of why kind of beaten out of you, because so many people do. You ask why as a child and you get an explanation if you're lucky. And then as soon as you go to school, it's it's not why anymore. You don't really get to ask why. What you've learned next is what's written on the next page of the textbook. And... It took, it took me certainly a very long time after I left university to rediscover why and to learn to ask why again and to learn to kind of enjoy why. Have you, have you always had that or did you have to rediscover it? Well, I can't really remember. You know, I sort of think I, th I think of myself as a different person than I was say, in my 30s, but I'm sure I'm recognisably the same person. It's just that you're Obviously, I wouldn't claim to be enlightened or anything like that, but there's a saying, you know, after enlightenment... No, before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water, you know? You know, I look at a tree in a different way, definitely, than I did 30 years ago. A tree, to me, is an astonishing thing, you know? And we, we what we know about trees, literally, in the last five or six years is that they are discovering things about plant intelligence now that are absolutely mind-blowing. You've got to respect a tree. And I remember years ago, in the middle of this crisis, I, I'd do anything to stop being so unhappy. So I went on a transcendental meditation course about which I was extremely embarrassed, you know, because I'm a public school, you know, walk it off type, <laughs> you know, uh, pull yourself together and get a grip and all that stuff. So I walked about six times around this house before going in and this guy, this guy opened the door and he was like lit up from within. He was like so shiny. It was ridiculous. His eyes sparkled, his teeth were amazing and he just looked so unbearably happy. And I went into this room and all these beaten people sitting there, they looked so miserable and old and they would all come like me because they were desperate to get some way out of the unhappiness. And so I kind of learned to meditate in a sort of way and I found... I mean, what's coming out of this session and looking at the trees down the middle of Park Lane and for the first time in my life thinking, 
that is astonishing. That tree, just that one tree is amazing. And staring at it, you know, stunned. And I started to do that to, to really try and look at things. I remember sitting and looking at a pigeon for the first time and thinking, pigeons aren't grey, they're all different colours, you know, purple and green. And, and the fact that that pigeon can do that, that it's that, look at the machinery there. What on earth are we pursuing artificial intelligence for and robotics when all around us, you know, an ant and a bee and a swallow, they're astonishing. And I think that's one of the big things <laughs> about being curious is once you start to dig into the sort of fabric of things, nothing is really ever boring. No conversation is boring. I never, I've just been to a big BBC lunch at the Garrick Club, you know, a bunch of old tufties, you know, most of them quite a bit older than me, who, the kind of people who used to run the Beeb, very good people indeed. But I would have before been either frightened by that, intimidated, or I'd have been bored. I think, you know, who are these old guys, you know? And just like me saying, you know, people sometimes say to me, you're terribly brave to talk about your mental illness, you know, say, what? Well, you know, you were depressed. I said, I don't consider that mental illness. For, for me, well, I was just mm. righteously depressed. I'm very angry and, and, you know, out of sorts and all that. But I don't see what's wrong with being forthright about it or telling other people I'm not ashamed of it. It's something that happened to me and I'm through it. And what you get is these treats, you know, because I say that to you and you say, oh, that's happened to me. I've had a midlife mm. crisis. So, you know, we are a step closer to each other than we weren't before. You know, we're a, a, an invisible membrane has broken open between us. And there's a connection. And, you know, actually that's the thing, the way that I think everything is connected to something. And the sooner you get into that, the, the, we are not islands. You know, we're not alone. We are very much connected and... And, you know, the edges of ourselves are sort of meshed with the surrounding universe in an interesting way. Uh, but of all things, the crime to me is that anyone could be bored is astonishing. Well, you're just not paying attention. You haven't begun. How can you be bored? You know, there's so many things you could think about. And so how do you choose? <laughs> what to be interested in. What to in? be interested in, yeah. I mean, the problem with philosophy is that... It's very difficult to discover the precepts because a lot of the, you know, and I've read a lot of philosophy, a lot of the text material is very dense and very difficult to work out what they're saying. It often looks like gibberish or very boring or hard to understand. And yet when you've distilled out of it, oh, this is a good thing to do, like be kind to people, it sounds so banal. It's like a sort of awful Hallmark greetings card, you know, the things that I think, you know, be brave be kind, try not to be an asshole, that kind of stuff. I mean, they're... Uh, and one of the, what one, is this hippie thinking? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, one of them is live in the moment, you know, which is people go, yeah, yeah, like, like it's an affirmation on some corporate office wall, you know. But actually, there is only now. The past has gone and can't be changed and the future may never happen. There is only now, every minute. And the, that's the thing is actually you don't really need to do anything apart from show up and then see what happens um, and just be open and listen a lot more. You know, I know I don't sound like I listen at all in the amount I'm talking, but I do a lot of listening and it's enough. You know, I, I frequently wake up and say, oh, God, I'm alive. I can't believe this. My mum nearly died about five weeks ago. She's 99. And um, oh, bless her. my sister was saying that uh, we were about to go on holiday and we took the risk that my son and I particularly thought she's really tough, my mum. She's not going to die. It doesn't feel like it's her time. We both thought that. 
So we took the risk and we went on holiday. We said, we'll, we'll fly back immediately if, if things go wrong. And she had this operation, my mum. And when she came out of the anaesthetic, my sister was there. And my mum said, oh, I'm alive. I'm alive. <laughs> and if we could just take that lesson to say, what a pleasure. What a mm. chance. You've got a whole other day in which you could do all, almost anything. And the truth is that few people do what you did, Sam. Few people say, I can't take this anymore. I quit. I'm going to do something I never thought I'd do. I'm going to go around the world with a rucksack or whatever. People feel terribly trapped by everything. I can't leave the town because the only job is here. And, you know, what if I miss my family? And people don't get out. And the, it's uh, really the, scary. Hmm. It's, it's genuinely very, very scary to to kind of ignore comfort and to hmm. put it to one side and to think, ah, actually, I could do with being a a bit more revved up today. I could do with a bit of adrenaline in my life. <laughs> I mean, it's not only would it be a good thing, but you sort of must do it. You mm. must step out of your own two quotations while they occur to me. Rainer Maria Rilke, the German poet, who said, one evening, take a step outside your house, which you know so well, enormous space is near. And that's obviously, you know, you've got to step out of the boots of your own personality, as it were. And another one is a science thing, and I think it's von Boltzmann, a German physicist, who said entropy tends to increase in a closed system. So that entropy is essentially chaos. But when you put something in a box, it, if it doesn't have anywhere to go, it just gets worse. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that's the thing about depression, for example. The best thing a depressive can do is get out of the house and speak to people. You know, go to the pub, help somebody over across the road, you know, do, do, go to go to a football match, anything, because you sit and think about yourself all the time, it's just going to get worse. And you will yeah. convince yourself you're a failure and life isn't worth living and all that kind of stuff. It is another of the great questions, by the way. Why, why is life difficult? Mm. Very hard to say, because I don't think cows find it difficult. They think they just think, oh, lunch, there's more lunch, there's more lunch. <laughs> I've had a shit, I'm more lunch. Oh, I'm dead. But they don't. And the thing is, that is... What is it about people? And it's the counterpart of curiosity is that when you find these, the, you know, you find this question, that's, uh, actually it's the first intelligent question I think I ever asked. I came home when we were, shortly after Sarah and I got married, I think we had one child then. I came home from work, had a bad day, and I said to her in the kitchen, why are things difficult? And she goes, what kind of question's that? I mean, they just are. Everybody knows that. Of course they are. But no, no, it's a very good question. Why are they? Why is so much of life so painful and difficult? The question that history has spent trying to answer, isn't it? One of them. I mean, I don't think they spend enough time trying to answer those questions. They try to answer questions like, how can we create a machine that can play chess? I mean, what? I mean, I quite like playing chess, but it is a fantastic <laughs> waste of time. You know, in the sense, it's like playing Sudoku. It has no, there is no point in it mm. other than for the sake of itself. But as somebody who thinks you should pay attention closely, there's nothing wrong with it either. But there's a very good law I remember reading about in, I think it was in a sort of Apple Macintosh magazine or something like that, which is the reverse, the inverse law of communications devices, which is the more sophisticated the device, the more banal the content that is transmitted yes. by it. <laughs> you know, what you're wearing, you know, all that, all these amazingly sophisticated, there's more computing power in any iPhone than it took to get this, you know, Apollo 
11 to the moon, mm. and yet it's just people showing pictures of their bottom on the photocopier. <laughs> you know, come on. Although having said that, that is, I think, human nature. You go around some of the great sites of the world and people have been scrawling their names on them. You know, Sven was here, is scrawled onto the Hagia Sophia from... Yes. <laughs> from, you know, I think, I think it dates back to about 1200 AD, the, uh, the graffiti. People have been showing their presence and signing themselves off for millennia, haven't they? Human nature hasn't changed. We've just suddenly been given a tool where we well, can it, shout about it more loudly to people who equally don't care. I mean, that's <laughs> also that's another of the great mysteries. I remember Martin Rees giving a talk in Oxford, the Astronomer Royal, and in the Q&A it came up. He said it's one of the biggest mysteries. As far as we know, human nature hasn't changed at all since Homo sapiens emerged genetically, and that why not? Mm. Everything else has changed. You know, look what we've done to the planet, and look at the machinery that's available, and yet most people still rowing with their loved ones over supper for no reason in particular and shouting at their children and and not getting on with people at work. And what is that about? Mm. Why we're in a lock, you know, that is just, it's like being in some terrible mechanism. It's just a repetitive struggle to, uh, to get out of the loop. I don't know if I believe in reincarnation or not, but the great thing about all those Buddhist philosophies is they're very, very logical and they make sense. You can think, well, I don't know if it's true, but I can certainly live by those principles. Although they make the same mistakes, don't they, actually? Even if, if reincarnation is real, whatever person or animal <laughs> comes back, they're still making the same mistakes over and over and over again, aren't yeah. they? The essential nature, no matter how good you are, doesn't change. You're still fighting, eating, stealing, cheating, loving, whatever every animal and person does. Yeah, it hasn't changed and people were putting graffiti on pillars in ancient Rome and all that kind of kit. But that's the thing. To me, the only game in town that's really interesting is can you overcome the initial conditions with which you are saddled or which we have certainly helped to make worse yourself very often? Can you make amends to yourself? Can you can you improve in some way? And it is, you know, um, you've got a bicycle, you get a flat tyre. Well, you know, you don't go... Huh. Okay, that's no good then. You you either get your puncture repair kit because you know how to do it, or you take it to a shop and find somebody who knows how to fix the puncture. It's not difficult. Human nature, you go, oh, well, that's just the way I am. It's just the mm. way I am. You know, that's that's human nature. Can't change human nature. Well, you can. You jolly well can, and you jolly well ought to. You should, you should give it a damn good go. I think you sort of have free will. I mean, you can leave your job and go to Brazil. You did, as it were. Very few people do actually make many decisions in their life, but that isn't the point. The thing is the things that you you have free will about is not so much as it's not can you do what you want, but can you do what you don't want? You know, and this is a key thing in sort of Arabic, uh, particularly Sufi philosophy, that um, there's a great line, forget who it's from. Um, can you uh, walk on water? You have done no better than a straw. Can you fly through the air? You have done no better than a blue bottle. Conquer yourself, and then you may become someone. I mean, you can live by that, can't you? You can think that's the... that's. I could have a flag with that embroidered on, you know, conquer yourself, and then you may become <laughs> someone. Really good, really good line. People are going through life with a bag over their head. They're so un unself-aware about anything and about anyone else you know you watch people on the tube all on their phones or trudging down the street to work nobody looks at anyone else nobody actually sees they're not really interested in anyone else we're living in a sort of 
self-defined solipsistic universe alone with our own pain and trouble it's a it's terrible and you don't know like as Rilke said you just got to step out of your boots that's all just don't mm. you don't have to be in there I think that's where programs like UI are so valuable because obviously they're they're interesting they're funny but it's a little point in time every week where although you're sat in your home doing it in your normal routine something new will come to you something that you haven't thought of a way of looking at things that you hadn't thought of and it's not just the fact it's the way that people react to the facts or answer the questions or the way the questions are asked and it's something that just kind of tickles at your brain slightly and just it just helps you kind of leave that space and leave the things mm. that you think you know about on a day-to-day -day basis and I think that's one of the reasons why it's touches so many people Apart from anything else, it makes those trips down to the pub much more interesting. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's like the, on the face of it, it's just a bunch of, you know, on the, we're doing a bit better on the age range, but it was quite a, especially when Stephen and four blokes were doing it, it's quite a middle-aged, you know, sort of a lot of clever people, you know, it's a sort of silly game and all that. But actually, the thing is, QI was, it's my philosophy of life. Before it was a game show, it was a philosophy and a way of being. And I think people perceive that it's about something and two things that it's about without ever saying so are, first of all, has absolute respect for the audience that if you put it clearly, they will follow anything you say. It doesn't matter whether it's about quantum physics or non-Euclidean geometry or, you know, platypuses. They'll go, That's, OK, do it well. You'll get a big audience. And the other thing is it's warm. Nobody's mm. horrible to anybody. You know, nobody tries to humiliate people. There's very little competition. There's a bit of light teasing. That's about it. And you realize how toxic most television is now. You know, the news is very negative and, uh, and you know, it's all murders and, you know, uh, crime and, and disasters, you know, natural disasters. You watch the drama. It's all about murder. Some of it's amusing about murder and some of it's very dark about murder, but it's basically people killing each other. Mm. There's very little proper comedy about anymore. Everything has to be dark and edgy. And there's very little warmth. You know, even if there are moments of warmth on X Factor, basically it's about the loser. You know, in tears, yeah. goodbye. You are the weakest link, goodbye, you know. Absolutely, it's cruel, yeah. it's negative, and QI isn't lo like that. And that is part of the... That is part of the philosophy and, and of the programme. We have people we like on. And even people you think, well, not sure whether I like them, they... They are people are generally nicer on QI than they are on the other programs they appear on. This is very odd. That's the aura of the room, though, isn't it? It's a gentle and accepting place where hmm. the assumption is that you don't know. The point isn't really to get the questions right on QI, is it? It's to get them wrong in such a way as we all learn something constructively. And yeah, and it's a, again, if I run a school, which we very nearly have tried to do on a couple of occasions, you know, all the teachers, almost the first training lesson would be, you know, don't get scared if the kids ask you things you don't know the answer to. Go, hey, that's a great question. Mm. I don't know. Let's find out. Yeah. You, your respect from the kids will just double, treble immediately. You said earlier, you know, it's okay to say why. The other thing I'd say it's okay to say is I don't know. I, I can't tell you since I worked that out, I don't know, 20 years ago. It's such a relief. I, know, I You know, I was one of the people who always had to be right. I had to win the quiz. You know, I got depressed if I came second at anything. I had to know the answer, win the argument. And I don't do that anymore. I just think, I don't know, no idea. What do you think? It's so relaxing. You take, <laughs> you take the afternoon off. You know, you don't have to. It, and it's so difficult. These things are so hardwired into us, our habits. It's a fascinating thing about human nature, isn't it? <laughs> 
you look at anyone else, particularly people you know well, your friends, you can see if anything had stopped doing that, they'd be fine. They don't, you know, but they don't see that. Mm. Nobody sees what the matter with themselves is. Yes. You can see yeah. what problem, everyone else's problems are easy to solve. But yours, you don't even know there, there are problems. You know, because we all basically go through life thinking, well, look, I'm not perfect or anything, but God, compared to the next door neighbours. And as for people <laughs> who live, you know, over there across the channel, they're all stinky and weird, you know. And anyone who lives further than two countries away is basically trying to kill you. You know, it's like, what? Have you ever travelled anywhere? That's not what people are like. You know, you, you've travelled. I remember when I used to hitchhike. What was astounded me is you could go more or less anywhere in the world and people, if you're friendly and open, you know, people will share food with you and say hello or put you up in their houses. Do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. In fact, and it's often the countries which have a reputation for being the unfriendly countries yeah. that are absolutely, completely the opposite. Mm. I, I will forever be heartbroken that Syria has ended well, has ended up the way it has because I was there in 2012, mm. I don't want to think, no, earlier in that, 2008. And it's the most wonderful country, absolutely mm. fantastic place, incredibly friendly, incredibly curious people, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. As long as you don't talk to the secret police who are following you around about the government too much mm. <laughs> and be sensible with your conversations, you'll have a lovely time and meet amazing people. Same with Iran. Mm. Beautiful place, absolutely fantastic. Yes. But it's the places that we're scared of. Mm. And actually, I don't. I think I don't know is a brilliant and liberating thing. And actually, since I've become a, a podcast producer now and I spend my time talking to people about things that they know a little bit more than me about uh, and having to say I don't know quite a bit particularly with this history podcast mm. it just it opens up a world of discovery when you say you don't know you say, okay well I don't know so we're going to find out so much fun and the hard bit actually is condensing it all down into something to say mm. the next mm. week it's, it's a wonderful way to be able to live your life if you can stay curious well, and it, because it's bottomless, it'll, you'll never run out of it. And interestingness is really interesting. It's not like, uh, it's not a drug like fame or money or power. You don't, the more you have, the more you want. It just a continual amount of interestingness every day is, is sufficient. You don't get greedy about wanting more interestingness. No. It's, it's, it's a sort of level thing. It's a bit like friendship. You know, friendship is a thing that, you know, delivers in a sort of lovely level even-handed kind of way you don't you'd be very weird if he's got to have 10,000 friends well of course some people do want that that's why they're on Instagram which I've just joined oh dear that was a terrible mistake <laughs> do you want to give your handle <laughs> <laughs> no. where could we follow you John <laughs> I'm sure they can find me no because the thing pings all night you know I haven't got time to do it. I knew that because I, I can't even keep up pace with my emails, let, let alone all that. And I don't do social media, really. I don't know. It's also the things, there's so much information, but most of the information is sort of pointless information, isn't it? It just clutters up your life because you don't need, and I've come to this conclusion after doing QI for 20-odd years. Is that how long QI has been going for now? Well, it's 18, this is, I think we're just researching the 18th series. Fantastic. So there was a pilot year, and then I was doing I was doing it for fun for the two or three years before that because I thought I've got I know I've got an idea here. Mm. This is this is something going on here. Are you still enjoying it? Do you still get the same joy that you did? From I don't. When you started? Really annoyingly, because of managing my son's band, you know, it's just driven a wedge through what little free time I used to have. It's filled filled all those spaces completely. Um, 
But last year, I had a really good autumn. I like in the autumn usually to do research for the pure sake of doing it, which because I'm running or helping to run the company, now I have very little time to do the pure research, which is why I started the company. That's, a, that's all I want to do. James, our senior researcher here, says, you know, he said, John, I just want to know everything. That's, what we, that's where I started. I want to know something <laughs> interesting about everything. And because last series, the one that's going out at the moment, is Q, which is a very difficult letter because very few things in English begin with Q. So there was quite a lot of worry amongst the production team and the research team that we wouldn't have enough material. So I thought, okay, this is why I started the company. I'm going to start a database of things beginning with Q. And I got up to 325 pages before I ran out of time. And I just gave it as a present to the research crew. So, so here's some stuff. I think they used... Uh, just one entry in the end. <laughs> it was about quarrying terms, which was quite an interesting book uh. I read on quarries. But no, it. I actually I did a piece for, you know, the Lady magazine is right next door through the wall there. And we're quite matey with them. They said, come, come round for tea. We come round for cake <laughs> and buns. And they're very, very nice people. And I did, uh, they have a sort of one of those um, questionnaires, you know, mm. who's your favourite film actor? You know, what's your favourite food and all that? One of them was, what makes you happy? And I said to my wife, what would you say makes me happy? And she said, definitely just doing pure research for the heck of it about something you've never heard of before. And there is a wonderful, you're definitely in the zone when you do that. It's very difficult to do because you need the first two hours, you won't find anything interesting. Most people give up. Yeah. And then suddenly you're there. Oh, hang on. There it is. I found the nugget hidden under the, the sod, you know. I'm sure you find that all the time when you're researching the history stuff, don't Absolutely, you? Absolutely, yes. It bring, nothing brings me more joy than discovering something that I'd never really either connected before or... You'd assumed. Or just something that mm. I'd assumed and it turns out I'm completely wrong or it filled a gap. And it's just, I love collecting stories. My mind is mm. full of useless stories that I wish my friends were more interested in hearing about, which is why I do the podcast, because <laughs> <laughs> Tom's my only friend who is. <laughs> Everything else gets forced out. Can't remember birthdays, can't remember a single phone number off the top of my head. Uh, but I can tell you that the tiny little fruit flies that fly around on your apples and bananas and like to sit in your beer are called Drosophila. Yeah. And, uh, and I can tell you that they can learn about pain. And that, to me, is more useful and interesting <laughs> than my mum's birthday. Mm. Sorry, mum. But that's just the way my mind works. Well, I think you I think you probably find, I mean, I find I can remember enormous amounts of that kind of the phone numbers and stuff. Still very bad on birthdays because I'm managing the band because I'm really extended and you basically either have to remember or die. You know, that's it. It's. But I was going to say about that, the, the way, again, most people go through life making assumptions. They think they know what they think because they think they've thought about it, but they haven't. Mm. Most people haven't thought about anything very much and they make assumptions, you know, like you're saying that Syrians and Iranians are bad guys, not having been there, but they read about it in the Daily Express or whatever. And that thing about preconceptions, there's another great Sufi saying, which is abandon preconceptions and face what is to be your lot. That's another thing you can live by, is actually don't go around saying you think you know stuff where you've no idea, you haven't been there, you haven't talked to the person, and, uh, you know, it's another sort of bit of new age or very, very ancient philosophy is don't judge people. You think, oh, you, so you're not even allowed to say that bad guys are bad anymore. Well, actually, you don't know whether they're bad or not. You haven't met them. You know, this is a piece of received opinion that you've made an assumption about, you know. 
And again, it's very freeing when you don't. If you can get there, rather than immediately think, I don't like old people, I don't like French people, you know, I don't like short people, I don't like, you know, whatever. You think, actually, I'm easy there's about be, all this. There's going to be one short old French person listening to this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Deeply don't offended. ever come back here again, you <laughs> Gaston. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, it, it's, it's funny that... Um, you know, because I say QI is, is a byproduct and a, a, a direct byproduct of me losing all sense of the meaning of my life and setting out consciously to discover is there is there a description of how to live and why we're here that's better than one I know at the moment, which would have been a mixture of, you know, sort of low-grade agnosticism and kindergarten Christianity, you know, which you couldn't really espouse anymore, plus a kind of um, <laughs> sort of feeling. And then, you know, and then you discover Greek philosophy and you go, and Buddhism and, and Zen and Sufi, you know, Sufism, amazing, so interesting. And suddenly you've got too much philosophy. There's too many things you can know, and it's the thing you don't... It's like, it's great fun, isn't it, discovering stuff, especially interesting stuff. You obviously making a living at it but you sort of don't need to know that that's just it's just a because you can never know you can't get to the bottom of anything at all you can never know even the half of it but it's you do need to know be kind be brave live in the moment you know listen a bit more those things are very important and yet people go but this is just horseshit what's the point of that what, why should you love your neighbor I hate the neighbours. They're revolting people. They're short, French, and old. I <laughs> say <laughs> my next one. I, well, yeah, I do have some French neighbours actually. They're lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> tall, willowy. Tall, um. tall, willowy. <laughs> do you know when uh, when I had the idea for QI, which had this amazing epiphany? It all happened all at once. You know, you know, like it all came gushing into the top of my head. Um, and I started making all these lists. And believe it or not, I thought, you know, within two years, five max, I will basically know all the interesting stuff there is to know. You, What an idiot. What <laughs> an idiot. There's no sign, whatever, that the mountain of interestingness is diminishing. No matter how much we mine it, it just seems to keep on That's, growing. That sounds very much like the start of a Chekhov novel. <laughs> <laughs> Man sets out to know all there is to know. Well, I did want. There's a. Is it? Um, is it in Middlemarch? Is there a character in Middlemarch who's trying to write a book, an encyclopedia of absolutely everything? I think there is. I can't remember his name now. And that's what I thought I was doing. That was the original idea for QI. It was an online years before Wikipedia, an online encyclopedia, but only the interesting stuff, which remains still a brilliant idea, but the work of a hundred years probably, or, or perhaps, <laughs> perhaps ten thousand people. Possibly a very difficult question, possibly a very easy question. Is there anything that you've discovered over the years as a headline that's really jumped out at you as a, God, I can't believe that happened? Uh, that's such an unfair question. Sam, it's a very unfair there's, question. There's, there's tens of, literally tens of thousands of those things I could think of. I could probably list, I mean, I just start talking about anything and think, it's, it's just because it's what we do and do every day. I mean, every day there's something. One of the interesting things is I can remember with, real clarity the early facts that I found out because I was you know just astonished by them Hmm. because it was fresh and we were all fresh to the first couple of series we all get everyone even Stephen Fry's going this is amazing look what we found (laughs) it wasn't uh, what it sort of become now sort of you know rather benevolent teacher who Hmm. apparently knows everything to start with 
So things like the steam engine was invented by the ancient Greeks in Alexandria in about yes. the year 100 yeah. by a guy called Heron or Hero. He also invented the vending machine, I believe. Oh, did he? That's good to know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, oh, a weight that dispensed uh, tap water, holy yes, water. I remember that, temple, the yeah. water, yeah. And, you know, the uh, all these things, you know, how many... Um, this is what QI has created. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think we have, you know, for, certainly for people of a certain age, it's your general knowledge, you know, mm. you can, you can, you know, people remember all of the, you know, that Napoleon and uh, Napoleon wasn't short and Nelson didn't wear an eye patch and Robbie Burns never wore a kilt. And, uh, you know, penny blacks aren't worth very much and um, thousands of thousands of things everyone knows to be true from school. And I love all those early ones, you know, like, you know I can't remember how many species of frogs there are now, but in those days it was 4,700 and something. 4,732 species of frogs and only one of them goes ribbit. I mean, that was one of my favourite ones. I dined on that because of, because of the idea that it's the Southern Pacific tree frog and it's the frog that lives in Hollywood. So anytime anyone hears a, wants a frog in a swamp, so there are Southern Pacific tree frogs apparently <laughs> living in Vietnam, you know, or they're in, you know, they're in Mad Max in Australia. No, they don't know. Those are the wrong frog, mate. Wrong frog. The invention of basketball, do you know that one? Was this, uh, that the whole basket didn't have a hole in? Yeah, that's or, right. Yes. Yeah, it was, a, it was an apple basket, wasn't it? You had to yeah. step up on a step ladder. And, and that was definitely before, that was before Wikipedia. I found that in the Encyclopedia Britannica and the Macropedia because of the frustration of trying to read the whole of the Encyclopedia Britannica and being astounded by how boring most of it was. You had to really go through acres of stuff to find one thing. Yeah, and the idea that, you know, the first 21 years of basketball, they didn't think of cutting a hole in the bottom of the basket so to climb up with a ladder or poke it out with a <laughs> stick. And that's now in Wikipedia, you know, that's you find that. I don't if shouldn't think it's QI's quoted as a source, although it is sometimes. The great thing about lots of QI's stuff is because it's often funny and surprising, it's very easy to remember. Or maybe you have to just watch it more than once because I, I remember um, <laughs> one of my friends, I told him the fact, which has nearly got us banned from several places on the internet, that I discovered an encyclopedia of mammals that female kangaroos have three vaginas. Uh, which they do, and, and don't let. And people tell, tell me, oh no, I'm a biologist. I know they don't. They do, actually. Uh, anyway, so I tell this bloke, female kangaroos have three vaginas. And he goes, that's fascinating. How interesting. And a year later, I bumped into him again. He said, I just told my father in law about that amazing fact you told me last year. And I said, what fact was that? You know, he said, well, that pandas have five willies. I said, no, <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> Because <laughs> people have got a general idea that, you know, there's some genitalia and it's an animal of some form. Can't exactly remember the number. It's when it becomes cyclical, though. It's when that that gets to some biologist who assumes it's right, puts it in a paper, and then it ends up in QI in five years' time. <laughs> well, one of my proudest moments is actually, there's a famous sketch in Not the Nine O'Clock News called Gerald the Gorilla about um, Mel Smith is a professor interesting in, uh, in linguistics, and he's gone and captured this gorilla called Gerald, played by Rowan Atkinson in the Congo, and, and taught it to speak and all that kind of stuff. And they have this rather fractious, probably slightly gay relationship they share a house together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he says, uh, when I uh, caught Gerald in the Congo, he was absolutely wild. Wild, I was bloody furious. <laughs> and, and then he says, uh, and has, has Gerald made any attempt to contact his old, uh, his family? And uh, he says, yes, he did make one attempt to 
contact uh, his flange of gorillas. And the, the gorilla says, oh, come on, Professor, it's a flange of baboons, for God's sake. It's a whoop of gorillas. Anyway, that is now in the scientific literature. You look up baboon law in, the, in scientific papers. Say, I followed a flange of baboons across the Maasai. <laughs> It's got into the language, and was that was that made up? And it's yes, simply become because there wasn't joke. a phrase. It's a or... stupid, <laughs> stupid joke. Yeah, <laughs> flange of baboons. <laughs> Did somebody? You know, it's just again the assumption. Even scientists do it. Actually, I because I, I watched not the nine o'clock news growing up, and I've just mm. always assumed. I remember that sketch, and I just assumed that it was just the way that Rowan Atkinson said it that made it funny. I didn't realise it was a completely made up word as well. Well, flange. You know what a flange a fl- is. Yes. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what was so lovely about Not the Nine O'Clock News is moving target stuff. So he says, at one point he says, as Aristotle once said, and the professor goes, oh, God, that one again. Which is, I taught Rowan that, because it means life is a cucumber and a woman is a bicycle in Greek, which is, I happen to know. And it's very funny in Corfu. Guarantee you go into a bar in Corfu and you say that aloud. People will laugh aloud. So, so it's a mixture of making up the flange and actually, of course, Aristotle didn't say it. But he is Greek and it is actually a proper Greek sentence, you know, which is I, I, I used to love that. You just, you just never know it's going to be silly one minute and then it's going to be sensible and then it's going to be mad and then it's going to be dangerous and then it's going to be repulsive and it's just great. It's such fun to do. Uh, when I was at school... We were sort of, if you were a scholar, which I was, we were hothouse. You turned up at 13. By 14, you had like 11 O-levels. You know, they mm. really made us work. It was horrific, actually. And then they had these, you know, because we were all undersized and, you know, undernourished because the scholars weren't allowed to do art or PE. It was considered a waste of time when they could get a German O-level and one in British Constitution <laughs> instead. And so they didn't know what to do with this so that... At 14, 15, we had to go into this um, class called the Special Sixth, where at that age, you know, right in the throes of all the ghastliness of adolescence, you were treated like real grown-ups. We were treated like PhD students. Mm. There was very little timetabling. We had, you know, we were allowed to discuss, write, do projects, and we had a sort of poetry club, and we did debating and public speaking and all that. It was the most fantastic That's year so of my life. Brilliant. And... Because there was no, you shall do this, you've got a, there's no curriculum at all. It just, just happened as we went along. And we'd have the teachers would come and give talks about things that they were passionate about and so on. And the head of history was a guy who was, his particular area was the Enlightenment. And he was passionate about Frederick the Great. And because, you know, we had a sometimes slightly fractious relationship, Mr. Harris and I, I wrote an essay which I researched like a university student. I never worked that hard at university. I spent, I don't know, two two weeks, maybe three, in the library looking up everything I could about Frederick the Great and writing the definitive essay that this man was a maniac, you know, <laughs> and a, a, almost completely crackers. And it was very, very, I put my whole soul into this thing and handed it to, to Mr. Harris. And it's the only time in my life I got 20 out of 20, you know, because he said, I have to say, this is very, very well argued. And that kind of respect for a child, you know, oh, it was so good. Actually, the only other time I got, um, well, it was 100 out of 100, I think, was um, for three years, one of the many 
insane things that QI's done. We had a club in Oxford, which was a five-story Georgian townhouse with a vodka bar in the basement, a bookshop and a bar on the first floor with only interesting books in it, then lovely comfy leather sofas and log fires on the first floor, and a dining room, and on top floor the company offices. Fantastic fun. We lost all our money, every, every cent of it. But it what was, a way to lose it. It was great fun. It re- and it goes on today, you know, the, the achievement of people. You know, there's one of the waiters has now got a Michelin star restaurant. Then the, one of the chefs, they've got a chain of restaurants. A lot of people did very well because it was so exciting. And because it had a bar, we had to <laughs> go and do the licensees exam. And you get, you get a whole lot of stuff you have to... There's an, there's an exam to... Yeah, get a you, booze license. Oh yeah, yeah. You can't just oh, get a no. license. You've got to know, you know, all the things about chucking out time. How you've got to how to deal with the drunks. Oh, you've right, got so to, it's just largely practical yeah, stuff. What, what kind of age kids can be? And we were shaking in our boots. We hadn't done an exam since we were a teenager, you know. But you've got that training in you that you know you can. And we studied this thing. We got hundred percent each. It was really exciting. All the other people, <laughs> you know, poor guys struggle along. And what's more, it just shows you the principle of complete attention to anything will always produce stuff. At least two QI questions came out of reading the licensees exam questions. One of which is, what is the youngest at which you can buy a child a gin and tonic in a beer garden? Right? <laughs> and people go, what was it, 14, 16, 18? What is it, you know, 21? All that klaxons going like crazy. <laughs> and the answer at that time was five. Yes, it was uh, five with a meal and a grown-up, yeah. wasn't it? I didn't realise that was gin and tonic. I thought that no, was, was only perry that you could do. No, no, with. it's gin and tonic. Ah, you can have anything mead. <laughs> as long as it's in the garden. And the thing is, as a result of that, they changed the law. <laughs> because that was all. I was so ashamed when that got out, you know. So it is, it is amazing. You do something banal you know, and, and sort of bureaucratic, but there's always a, an edge to it, you know, somebody you meet or a piece of information or something you learn from it. And I was pathetically proud of getting 100%. I'm pathetically proud because actually the questions are, most of the questions are so, you think, okay, this is obviously a trick question. I can't, that's such an obvious answer to that. But you mm. think, oh, I haven't got a better idea. Put the obvious, actually, it's quite easy, really. Although if you are a 10-year-old drinker of gin and tonics <laughs> and uh, you'd like to complain. Yeah, don't do this at home, children. <laughs> I've got to ask this. and make this the final question. Do you have any plans to bring back Spitting Image? Because I know that it's been rumoured in various newspapers. Well, I don't. I'm, I thought for one horrific moment that Roger Law, who is trying to bring it back, was going to ask me if I would come back. And I haven't got time. And it nearly killed me when I was 32, whatever age I was when I did it. But yeah, they have got a company called Avalon is behind it with Roger Law as the creative supremo. Avalon went and found some private money. I'm not sure. I did hear a rumour that, um, because they also make John Oliver's show, that they might be something to do with that. And they've made a 10-minute taster pilot and some puppets, which apparently is very, very funny indeed. I've seen some of the drawings, which are excellent. And they are at the moment touting it round some of the digital telly stations like Amazon and Netflix. It's a shame we didn't do Spitting Image five years ago because I don't think we'd be in the situation we are now. Because one of the joys of, you know, I'm not sure we intended this really, but it was about something in the sense that it made the assumption that people were interested in the way they were governed and underneath sort of childish rudeness and name-calling, big ears and big nose and all that. It was true that the the average 15-year-old 
13-year-old were very well informed about the sort of broad strokes of politics. They could, as I often said, in 1986, the last year I produced it, there were 15 million viewers a night on Sunday night, all demographics, all classes, all ages, as you'd expect with an audience that huge. But as I say, the average 13-year-old could easily have, without thinking about it, named 10 members of the cabinet, four members of the shadow cabinet. No, no question at all. Mm. They would have said, okay, there's the one with the slug on his head and there's, you know, that's Heard who's got an ice cream cone and then there's Kenneth Baker who's a slug. And these are people who are completely unknown two years before to the British public. And so when you've got that sort of easy to consume politics and you get, you know, you get a sense of it. And because it's funny... It's coming at you, your opinions are being formed without vitriol and without really without taking sides. It's not that these guys are all wrong, they're all bad guys, and these guys are all good guys. It was no, we used to give both sides as much stick as we could. And I think people were informed, and you know, it wasn't a sort of huge existential crisis here, but there was right in the middle of the miners' strike in the first series, and people again weren't getting from anybody really, apart from Channel 4 News, any attempt to be unbiased and put all the sides of the thing you're basically either bad guys or they're perfect and so it was really only us and channel four who gave it you know a bit of space and and obviously us humor as well and uh, one day arthur scargill head of the num turned up with some minders big burly miners came to the studio so and i said to him arthur uh, we've never had a person on spitting English before you can have five minutes mate Go on, go on, say anything you want to that camera. You can have a platform. We'll put you out. I guarantee I'll get you out there. And he said, he'd had a word with his minders, and they go, don't do it, Arthur. He's a probably middle-class bastard. He'll stitch you up in some way. So he didn't do it, which would have been a fantastic coup. Yes. But only because yeah. of the point was that we didn't feel that the miners' case was being you know, put by anybody, really, mm. in, a, in a fair way. We didn't think they were listened to in terms of what the arguments were. So well, there you go. That was my one attempt to change the, the history of the world, and I failed. <laughs> well, that's not true, because you got the legal drinking age raised from yeah, 5 yeah. to 14. So. Oh, and also <laughs> the other thing we did was, um, in Not the Nine O'Clock News, remember that sketch, the the darts players, where they would, they, instead yes. of, they got scored Sh- and how much shots, they could drink. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that, double, it's a double, the darts it's a association yeah. <laughs> was so embarrassed about it, they changed the rules about how much you could drink on a, at a darts match, so... <laughs> So I have made two differences to history in a small way. Well, that's it for another episode where we meet real geniuses or genii. Genies? Thank you so much to John for taking time out of his busy schedule as QI master and band manager to speak to us. And if you want to check out his son's band, they are called Waiting for Smith and they really are very good. So do give them a listen. They're on Spotify and other music platforms as well. That's Waiting for Smith. Thanks again, John. And we'll be back to our normal That Was Genius service very shortly. <laughs>